Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, February 24th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A lot of COVID-19 vaccine news, as well as a disappointing trial readout from a would-be competitor of Regeneron. We cover all that and more in our signature Chatty Cathy segment. Next, STAT's Ushali McFarling joins us to talk about a groundbreaking investigation into racial disparities in American medicine, and why almost nothing has changed in the 20 years since it was published. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, The need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash askbiggerquestions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash askbiggerquestions. Well, I thought it would be appropriate to begin our Chatty Cathy segment this week with some very big news for the two of you guys, as well as colleague Matt Herper. That's my drum roll. Um, (laughs) This week, it was announced that you guys won the George Polk Award for medical reporting for your reporting on, of course, nothing other than Biogen and its Alzheimer's drug Adjuhelm. In the award, they noted uh, you guys revealed Biogen's covert lobbying of the Food and Drug Administration, which overruled its scientific advisors to grant approval for Biogen's new and costly treatment for Alzheimer's disease, despite questionable trial results. They say multiple investigations ensued and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services restricted coverage for the drug to further trials. I think one of the most remarkable things about this, guys, is that a non-COVID set of stories won the medical reporting award. Like, that's pretty amazing. It was certainly nice to win for our Biogen reporting. Congratulations, Damien. Thank you. Congratulations to you as well and to Matt, who uh, is off this week, but I am sure is listening to this the very second that it is available online. <laughs> and this is actually the second year in a row that Stat has won a George Polk Award because Helen Branswell won one last year for her COVID reporting, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she won last year. Um, you know, because of COVID, uh, they didn't have the award luncheon. So um, Helen didn't get to have the rubber chicken that uh, Damien and I will probably get to have uh, in early April in New York City. We're looking forward to that. All right. So moving on, um, like we said, there was a lot of vaccine, COVID vaccine uh, news this week. Uh, Meg, why don't you fill us in? Yeah. So 
some of the bigger news I think came from Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline, which um, was sort of the the final um, horse in the Operation Warp Speed race to get across <laughs> the phase three finish line. They'd had many delays. It uh, appeared based on earlier data that their vaccine may not work well enough uh, in the older population, so they had to reconfigure it. Now they've come out um, saying essentially they've got these phase three results and they're planning to file for regulatory clearance around the world as both a primary series and as a booster. And what's interesting about this vaccine is that like Novavax's, it's a protein-based vaccine with an adjuvant, which is a more familiar tried-and-true vaccine technology. And there is some discussion that some people might be waiting for this more traditional technology to come along before getting vaccinated, although I think we all have questions about how large that group of people actually might be. Um, It's also a fridge-stable vaccine, so it can be stored at regular refrigerator temperatures around the world. Um, In terms of the efficacy, it's kind of interesting. You know, this is, of course, results by press release, as we have been getting throughout the pandemic and people have been complaining about. And we don't know the exact breakdown of Delta versus Omicron in the trial. What they found was overall 58% vaccine efficacy against any COVID disease. And they say early sequencing results from the trial suggest it was 77% against Delta. So that implies much lower, perhaps, against Omicron. Um, They said they showed 100% vaccine efficacy against severe disease and hospitalization. But if you look at the breakdown, they only had 14 cases of severe disease and 10 of those were after the first dose. Only four of them were after the second. And so there's some question about the strength of that data as well. Um, They also showed, you know, they can boost antibody levels higher um, when it's used as a booster. But the big question, I think, in addition to, you know, needing to see the Omicron specific efficacy, since that's essentially the only variant circulating right now, um, is does this get through as both a primary series and a booster? I saw a note from your own Werber at Cowan this week suggesting because there are now two vaccines fully approved in the U.S. for COVID-19 from Pfizer and Moderna, that the EUA standard will have changed for at least the primary series. The boosters are still under EUA. But will you be able to get emergency use authorization for another primary series when there are two approved vaccines? So they thought maybe it'll get EUA as a booster, but not as a primary series. And of course, you'd think perhaps the same logic would apply to Novavax. But it's possible that the EUA uh, you know, pathway will still be open to them. We, we haven't really heard from the FDA on that. And let me ask you a question. What, what's the what's the public health implications of having this uh, this vaccine, you know, we should note Novavax also is out there. Um, I think that they said this week uh, that they're starting to ship their vaccine in Europe. What what are the, you know, who's going to use these vaccines? And so you mentioned kind of people maybe who are vaccine hesitant, but like that's probably not like a huge group of people. So like, you know, where what happens with these vaccines now? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. It's not totally clear. We know that there's a lot of the world that has not been vaccinated yet. And so you you might think, okay, maybe this is a good option for, for those folks if there can be more supply provided. But there was a report from Politico in the last few days, which sort of reinforce what we've been hearing for a few months now, which is that supply is becoming less of the issue for delivering vaccines to people who haven't had them yet. And issues of logistics and in some cases hesitancy is are the remaining problems. And so Politico reported that Africa's CDC is going to ask Um, that donations be paused uh, for a while, at least until the second half of this year, as they try to catch up on what they've already got. Um, And so whether we need, you know, yet another kind of vaccine to deliver to people who haven't been vaccinated yet, 
is a key question. Having more technologies could be helpful and getting to see how that works and stands up against variants will be helpful too. They didn't provide a lot of breakdown in terms of you know T cells versus antibody responses and things like that, which are important for how well things will work across variants. So I think there's a big question, but we know that Sanofi and GSK are some of the biggest vaccine makers in the world, at least before COVID with flu and other diseases. And so having dependable vaccine manufacturers with a new tried and true technology seems like a good thing. Yeah, it's interesting because this increase in, in the number of or pending increase in the number of available types of COVID-19 vaccines in the world can only be a positive. But, you know, Adam, your question also gets at sort of the business angle that everyone's trying to figure out, which is what will be the demand for doses come later 2022. And that was very much on people's minds uh, this morning, Thursday morning, as Moderna reported its earnings, um, which were very positive in the grand scheme. They're a company that sells an incredibly uh, useful product in their COVID-19 vaccine, and they expect to make something on the order of $20 billion from it in 2022. But what everyone has kind of lasered in on is what will be the lasting demand for this. And so the debate is, and Moderna would counter that, in 2022, there will be an increased demand for boosters in the fall in some of the Western countries that have already um, seen most of their populations get that primary series. But we really don't know. We don't know both immunologically whether that will be a necessity in medical terms and also just in market terms, whether people really want another go round of specifically Moderna's mRNA vaccine, which has a tougher reactogenicity profile than perhaps the, the Novavax and the Sanofi, at least from the data we've seen. Yeah, I thought it was interesting this morning that Moderna on its conference call seemed to be, you know, they, they seem to be pushing this idea that another booster uh, would be required, you know, later in the fall. They had they showed some data from from their own vaccines. But I think that also kind of it, it I don't want to say contradicts, but I know that there are there are data that there are studies that showing that 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 perhaps we don't need, that people won't need a booster, another dose of vaccine for quite some time. I know there was a story in the New York Times this week uh, citing a study which showed just that. So like there's, there seems to be conflicting scientific evidence right now about whether or not we're going to all need to, you know, to get another jab. Um, you know, the cynic, the cynic in me says that, you know, obviously this is important for, for Moderna from a revenue perspective. I mean, the, you know, the narrative that, oh, we, you, you were going to need more vaccine doses and, and governments are going to have to re-up and resupply and enter into new contracts with Moderna. Obviously, that plays uh, that plays well for them in terms of they're trying to keep, you know, maintain that revenue that they've that they've generated so far. Yeah. And interestingly, um, Bonsell, the CEO of Moderna, Stefan Bonsell, pointed out this morning, the U.S. doesn't have an option yet to buy more boosters for this fall. I don't know what our leftover stock of Moderna vaccines or Pfizer vaccines or any vaccines are if we need to buy more boosters for the fall, if they potentially would expire. But that is kind of interesting. Like, what's is the U.S. just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen? Um, Bunzel actually has been a little more measured on who he thinks will get boosters in the fall. I think there had been a narrative among the vaccine companies that this was going to be an annual booster, and they typically sort of talked about it like it would be for everyone. But this morning and um, in other recent interviews, Bonsell 
essentially said it would probably be for more vulnerable people, either because of health issues or age. He suggested 50 being the the age above which you would get a COVID, you know, an annual COVID booster. And he also said it could be just for people who don't want to get sick. He kind of compared it to how he gets a flu vaccine every year, even though he's not really afraid of dying or going to the hospital from flu. He just doesn't want to get sick. Um, so that was kind of an interesting way of looking at it. Hey, Damien, I want to stick with Moderna for a second, because um, if you look at a stock chart uh, of Moderna, you know, last September, last fall, this was a company trading with shares trading well above $400. Today, the stock trades around $145, um, you know, which suggests that investors are a little bit uncertain about the company's uh, future, maybe beyond COVID vaccines. Was there any other thing that they noted on the call or in their earnings today? Well, Moderna is very focused on beyond COVID-19. They have more than 30 other mRNA medicines and vaccines in development, and they have been voluble, I would say, in the past few weeks with press releases and and media appearances pointing toward those things and the vast potential that they have, according to Moderna. But that hasn't really changed the narrative, at least in terms of the stock price. And it's kind of, Moderna has been an interesting sort of business case for the better part of two years, because, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, when they were trading at around $400, I think most reasonable parties concluded that their valuation had departed from reality. Um, I think it was Michael Yee from Jefferies who declared them the Tesla of biotech, not that they made cars, but rather that their stock price was a measurement of, I don't know, that the animal whims of the market, less so than the actual like future P&L of Moderna, the company. It's come down a great deal since then. And so now the conversation is, okay, well, what is it actually worth? Like I said, most people understood it wasn't worth $450 a share or whatever, but is $145? Is that too low? You know, it's it's basically printing money from this COVID-19 vaccine, but there's anxiety over just how long those revenues can sustain. And so now we're, it feels like we're every day, at least on, on the stock market, watching people debate what Moderna's actual future will be and whether these other mRNA products, whether they be vaccines or medicines, can ever hope to match or sustain the revenue that the company's pulling in right now. And it feels like an open question, even to this day. I think a lot of the conversation is not just, will this stuff work, but when will we see key data that tells us what the future of Moderna will be? Particularly when it comes to drugs, you know, exactly. not Exactly. Yeah, a lot of these products are in early stages of development. Yeah. And I mean, the company has a lot of answers, and I don't want to discount that, but it does still feel very much like a wait-and-see story. And the other, I think the other issue that's come up with Moderna is just the is the issue of what they're going to do with all of the cash that they've generated. I mean, you know, obviously they're 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 bringing in tons of money uh, from these COVID-19 vaccines. And so the question is, well, what do you do with it? And I know going into today, there was some sort of debate about whether the company should issue for, for a dividend, for instance, you know, whether they should be redistributing some of that money back to shareholders. But that also is a signal to the market that maybe the company is kind of running out of ideas, um, you know, and not not either not finding things to buy other companies or to invest in its own pipeline. Um, so these are just kind of all kinds of big questions, I think, that are sort of sitting over uh, sitting over Moderna's head that are that, you know, time will tell to sort of see where the company what the future of the company looks like. 
So outside of the COVID vaccine and COVID company arena, uh, there was some big and disappointing news for a company called Kodiak. Adam, do you want to walk us through it? Yeah, Kodiak, uh, and that's Kodiak with a K. There's actually two biotech companies. There's a Kodiak with a C and a Kodiak with a K. This is the Kodiak with a K. Uh, And they were developing uh, essentially like a long-acting version of Regeneron's blockbuster treatment for a particular eye disease called ILEA. Uh, it's kind of an antibody, and it has this sort of chemical properties that sort of were supposed to make it last longer. These are these are drugs that have to be administered via injection into the eye, directly into the eye. So as you can imagine, the fewer injections that you have to do every year, um, but nicer for <laughs> nicer for patients. Kodiak had launched this large phase three study trying to show that fewer injections of their drug uh, were, uh, you know, essentially equivalent or even possibly superior to uh, Regeneron's blockbuster drug, ILEA. And as you mentioned, Meg, uh, the study did not work. Right. So the goal was to demonstrate non-inferiority, and it turned out they demonstrated pretty dramatic inferiority. There's a a chart with the data that, you know, (laughs) looking at it uh, as an unbiased observer, you would choose ILEA, having seen the effects of the two medicines against one another. And it's just a reminder of, you know, before President Trump made Regeneron uh, nationally famous for its COVID-19 antibody, this is a company that has made billions and billions of dollars from this medicine, ILEA. I think it was approved in 2011. There was anxiety in the past as to, you know, various competitors that might emerge for it. Can Regeneron defend it? It turns out the answer is yes. We've seen, you know, a new treatment from Novartis, uh, that was FDA approved that didn't really dent demand for, for Regeneron's treatment. A recent one from Roche was approved, and at least so far, ILEA is holding firm. It made more than $9 billion last year. This is, I think it was Brian Scorney who quoted the now almost 20-year-old uh, HBO television series The Wire by saying, if you come at the king, you had best not miss. And uh, in this case, ILEA survives. I guess we should wrap up our extremely chatty, chatty Cathy segment that has gone on much longer than our producer Teresa wanted it to um, by talking about an exciting development for STAT this week, um, the premiere of Augmented on PBS's Nova uh, that premiered on Wednesday at nine o'clock. Guys, tell us about what this is. So Augmented is STAT's long in production first feature length documentary movie. Um, Our former producer of this podcast, Matthew Orr, is its director, and a lot of people at Stat contributed to it. And it chronicles an MIT uh, engineer and scientist named Hugh Herr and his quest to revolutionize prosthetics uh, that people are given after amputations. And I won't step all over the plot or the science in it, but I strongly recommend you watch it. But uh, it is exactly what I personally look for in a science documentary, which is something that holds my attention, doesn't make me feel stupid, and has um, wonderful visuals. So it ticked all of those boxes. It premiered on Nova this week, and it's available on the PBS website or the Nova sub website, or basically if you Google PBS Nova and the word augmented, you should be able to find it. And likewise, you can check your local listings as it is running uh, most nights, I think. Yeah, the bionic man is real. That's <laughs> kind of my my quick sum, summation of of augmented, it's a it's a fantastic film, and and like said like you said, Damien, you know Matthew Orr, who was who ran multimedia for Stat for a long time, and this was his this was his like sole project. I mean, he he put his heart and soul into this into this 
film and it's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, there was delays because of COVID and all that stuff. So it's it's just really cool to finally see it, the see the premiere and see it out there for, in the world for everyone, everyone to watch it. And uh, I, I I highly recommend you guys trying to catch it on the stream, uh, PBS Nova. It, it's it's fantastic. So. Garde and Feuerstein's science movie reviewing, two thumbs up. <laughs> Absolutely. A blue ribbon panel of healthcare scholars analyzed reams of data to generate a 764 page report with a definitive conclusion. Racial and ethnic minorities experience a lower quality of health services and are less likely to receive even routine medical procedures than our white Americans. That was two decades ago. And while that report, titled Unequal Treatment, sent shockwaves through medicine when it was published in 2002, the disparities it revealed remain in place and few of its recommendations have been implemented. Stat Ushali McFarling tracked down the researchers behind unequal treatment for a series of stories published this week. And she joins us now to talk about it. Usha, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So maybe let's start back in 2002. How did this report come to be and and what was the reaction upon its publication? Well, the seeds of this actually go back to 1985. And that's when Health and Human Services published a major report that showed that People that were in many racial and ethnic groups in America had much higher burdens of disease and much lower life expectancies than white Americans. Um, this was called the Heckler Report. And that spurred Congress to say, well, we really need to do something about this. We need to find out what's behind these disparities. So they asked the, uh, it was called the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academies of Medicine, to look into the data, look into the information and figure out what, what was really going on. Why did these health disparities exist? And tell us about some of the findings from the original report. What did it show? It's it's a remarkable thing to look at. And, you know, you can find it online. It's linked to in my story. But there is a chapter that has hundreds and hundreds of references um, to any kind of medical condition you can think of showing that patients of color get less care, don't receive care, wait longer for care have poorer outcomes or die earlier. As Brian Smedley, one of my, the lead editor of the report told me, it's like from A to Z, you know, arthritis to, you know, whatever disease you want to mention, it was clearly a pattern. Um, They also found, you know, for the first time they said, you know, racism and bias plays into this. They accumulated all this evidence showing that physicians, nurses, healthcare workers, you know, despite the nobility of the profession, despite saying we treat everyone equally, that their biases were contributing to poor care. And that's something many healthcare systems are addressing now. So now, you know, we still see poorer outcomes and higher death rates for nearly every medical condition the report examined. And as one of the lead editors put it to you, quote, we are still largely seeing what some would call medical apartheid. From the people you spoke with, I mean, what stood in the way of progress in the last two decades? I mean, it was clear in the pandemic when we saw such higher um, burden of disease and higher death rates among people of color that health inequities are widespread throughout our healthcare system. And for the people that wrote this report and for many people of color who have experienced it, this should have come as no surprise at all because this report laid everything out very clearly what the reasons were. And they had just mountains of evidence. The, the report is nearly 800 pages long. And I think what people would say is that as a nation, we're still very uncomfortable talking about race. And we can't really talk about racism and getting rid of racism and medical racism unless we talk about race up front. 
a lot of people would say there's still a denial that this is a problem, even among doctors and nurses um, who just don't see that they might be treating patients differently. And almost every study um, that's looked at this shows that people do have implicit bias. They may not realize it. They may not be an outwardly racist person. They may think they treat all their patients equally, but there's just a lot of evidence that they don't. And I think it really comes down to both a lack of will uh, to, to make these changes and, and a lack of data, which we can talk about. One researcher you spoke to pointed to the fractured nature of the American healthcare system, you know, which is admi administered by the federal government, a bunch of national agencies, and then you've got 50 states that often have opposing approaches to medicine. Is there a way to cut through all of that complexity? I mean, we saw that in the pa pandemic response, how fractured everything is and uncoordinated. A lot of the experts just feel that this data you know, outcomes um, and accountability need, maybe should happen on a federal level. One, you know, in the 1960s, the thing that led to the desegregation of hospitals, you know, many of which had not allowed black patients, not treat black patients or segregated them from white patients, was Medicaid and Medicare saying, we're not going to pay you if you do that. So despite that macro lack of progress on the nationwide scale over 20 years, as you highlight in your second story in the series, there's no shortage of people working to rectify these disparities on a smaller scale, an institutional scale, or something a little more tractable than the entire United States. So I was wondering, could you tell us about Dr. Quinn Capers and what he did at the Ohio State University College of Medicine? Dr. Capers is a cardiologist. He's black, and he you know, he's now at Southwestern Medical um, Center in Dallas, but he was at Ohio State for many years and became the Associate Dean of Admissions. And he looked at his medical school and said, only, you know, about 13% of our students are from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds, Black, Hispanic, Native American. And that was about the national average. And he thought, well, we can do much better. And so he set into place um, a variety of changes from having all of the admission committee members take implicit bias training, removing photos from um, folders so people couldn't see what applicants looked like, uh, having putting in, you know, only only um, considering for admission students that had very good test scores and grades, so they knew they could, you know, hack the medical curriculum, but not, not letting people know what those grades were. So they weren't, um, you know, giving demerits to people that didn't have the top, top grades. And in, in just a very short period of time, they were able to turn around and vastly increase the number of students that were admitted and that chose to come to Ohio State because they saw it as a, a place that would welcome them. And now Ohio State is one of the top um, medical schools in terms of student diversity. And we do know that there is such a severe lack of physicians of color in this country. And those numbers have not budged in decades, despite attention to um, issues of diversity. So pro programs like this are really making a difference and, and could and po possibly will be more widespread. Thinking about efforts to try to address this now, it almost seems like there are shades of the same argument about uh, critical race theory in schools happening with some degree of pushback about even acknowledging and naming the racism in medicine for what it is. Can can you tell us about any of the challenges that presents? I mean, how real are those challenges? 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. It's definitely something people in health equity are are worried about. They say, on one hand, we've had a lot of progress, like we are finally having these open discussions about race and calling things what they are. And then they also say we're facing this backlash that medical schools shouldn't be talking about race. Um, and we've seen in Massachusetts protests at, at um, Brigham and Women's Hospital against programs that would treat um you know, black patients who are at higher risk of death from cardiac disease differently than white patients in order to offset those health disparities. Um, you know, people saying this is reverse racism. And so I think I think these programs are getting more and more widespread, kind of attacking health inequities before they start by providing a higher level of care to patients who need it or at most at risk. But those are, um, you know, that that seems to be a battleground right now. And I think it's a it's a big shift in medicine. Um, some physicians have said, well, you know, we were taught all along you treat all patients the same. But a health equity lens says, no, you don't treat everyone the same. If someone's more at risk or more vulnerable, you might give them more treatment. You might intervene earlier. And I talk about that in, in my second story. There's a healthcare system in North Carolina that realized it was seeing its black patients um, come in with pneumonia and die of pneumonia at much earlier ages than its white patients. So it was pushing, it, using electronic records and the simplest of things, a little nudge, like a sentence to the physician, this patient may be at high risk for severe complications of pneumonia, please consider adequate levels of care. And they, they very quickly saw a drop in mortality for pneumonia. So these, these things really are working to end disparities. So Usha, a through line in your reporting recently, both with these stories and with past stories about, you know, inequities in orthopedic surgery and in just in medicine by and large, there's a trend where the facts are known. And to some extent, there's something of a consensus that these issues exist. And yet, you know, here we are, as in the case of this 20 years removed from this report, having the exact same conversation. So I'm curious, is there optimism that that these realizations can actually spur change in the near future? It's interesting because everyone I talk to, I say, well, is it going to change now? Or are we going to see some improvement? And they all say, well, we have to be optimists because we wouldn't be in this business if we weren't optimistic. And yes, change is possible. And then in the very next breath, they say, well, I'm really worried because, you know, right now we're sort of in this you know, the pandemic is maybe easing or hopefully will ease or one day will end. And everyone's talking about like getting back to normal. And I think for a lot of people of color who have not had quality health care, like normal isn't okay. Like they don't want to go back there. Um, so is there in this race to, you know, get back to normal and deal with all the crises brought on by the pandemic in healthcare? Will this once again be shuttled to the back? And that's something maybe, you know, we won't know for some time. Well, again, you can read Usha's special report, two parts uh, on this landmark report from 20 years ago called Unequal Treatment. You can read all of that on the digital pages of STAT at statnews.com. Usha, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how many thumbs up you give augmented. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.